Our scripture reading this morning is from uh, Acts chapter 17. Uh, Acts chapter 17. Uh, last week we, um, we looked at a sermon that uh, Paul uh, preached in Pisidian Antioch to a largely uh, Jewish audience. This week we'll look at um, on a second missionary journey uh, where, uh, where Paul speaks to uh, um, a quite different audience in Athens. So uh, Acts chapter 17, we'll begin reading at verse 16. It's found on page 1723. It's found on page 1723. Well, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all people life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of people that they should inhabit the whole earth And he determined the times set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring... We should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by people's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead heard about the resurrection of the dead. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. In many sports, there's no uniform way to prepare for each opponent Coaches take stock of the teams that they'll be facing. They do it in order to discern strengths and weaknesses. Coaches want to know how to exploit the other team's weaknesses. And 
how to avoid playing into the other team's strengths. You prepare differently depending on who you're facing. You can't always follow the same game plan. Last week we saw that Paul's sermon to a largely Jewish audience in Pisidian Antioch was filled with the story of Israel and many quotes from the Old Testament, Psalms and Prophets. Paul summarized Israel's history and described Jesus' death and resurrection as a fulfillment of all God's promises. The audience could track with him. They basically understood that story in its context. But in Athens, Paul faced a completely different audience. He couldn't follow the same game plan. He faced a new cultural challenge in which to preach about Jesus. So he needed a new game plan. Paul had to be aware of his audience as he spoke of the good news about Jesus. Athens presented Paul with an amazing opportunity. He arrived there ahead of Silas and Timothy, and while he waited, he wandered around the city. What he found disturbed him. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Not just idols. Athens was full of ideas of every stripe. Once, Athens was the center of the Western world. Where Rome had been the center of power, Athens had been the center of culture. Athens was home of the great Greek philosophers, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. They once lived and taught there. Athens once produced the greatest in art and literature and philosophy. By Paul's day, the luster had worn off. Athens was a shadow of her former self. Still interested in the world of ideas, but more for novelty's sake. People gathered in the marketplace to hear the latest. Luke writes, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This marketplace had temples and law courts, public archives and libraries, shops, concert halls, gymnasiums, theaters and galleries. All of these were in the marketplace. And Paul did his usual. He went to the synagogue to, quote, reason with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. But Luke doesn't tell us much about Paul's synagogue experience. Instead, we're told about Paul's marketplace encounter. Athens loved philosophy. Much of what Athens was known for was in the past, but not philosophy. The citizens of Athens had this huge buffet of gods and goddesses. And once these gods and goddesses played a major role in the lives of the people of Athens, they had built multitudes of shrines in hopes of appeasing their fickle gods. But by the time Paul visits, their beliefs in these gods are starting to shrink. They view all of it as more myth than religion, and skepticism ruled. The people may have been interested in new ideas, but they had very little interest in new gods. So Paul surveys this moral wasteland that was Athens. He's not impressed. He views the things we consider famous, the Parthenon, the Apollo Belvedere, the 240-foot-long relief sculpture called the Elgin Marbles. And all he can see are idols. So he engages the philosophers of the city as they challenge him. Some of them asked, 
What is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. See, Paul came face to face with some of the the philosophies that were floating around Athens. One group was the Stoics. They believed that divinity lay within the world and within each human being. There was no external God. Reason was their God and it lived in them. You'd be able to find peace by submitting to your lot. Pain, joy, life, death, it didn't matter. Just adjust to your circumstances through reason. A Stoic would basically say, listen, it's just your lot in life. If you think about your situation, if you understand the big picture, you will endure. Your goal was to harness this divine force of reason within you. You could discover the good life by getting in touch with and living according to your inner divine rationality. Another group was the Epicureans. They were the dominant philosophical group. They believed the gods were far away from the world's affairs. There really was no communication between the gods and people on earth. Certainly, they believed there were gods, but these gods didn't create or determine. Seeking after gods would only lead you to greater anxiety in life. The best thing you could do is simply to get on with life. You will gain the maximum of your existence, the maximum pleasure for your life, by just living a quiet existence. Enjoy a crust of bread, a cup of water, Live a simple life. That will bring you satisfaction. And then there was another philosophical option available. It was the academic, a view founded by Plato in the academy. This philosophical stream contended that there is not enough evidence to determine whether the gods exist. And if they do exist, it's not clear what they want from us. See, the irony is, some with this view had this shoulder-shrugging-I-could-care-less attitude, while others had kind of a humble openness to things divine. Well, it's Paul, Paul addresses these humble ones in his marketplace speech. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Paul sees a kind of humble agnosticism in the altar to an unknown God. He saw people with windows of their hearts open to something more. You see, in Athens, Paul entered an arena of opportunity. He had the chance to speak to a culture that challenged him and his ideas of God. Into this arena... Paul lays a foundation of the gospel. One person says he presents a a natural theology. Paul preaches the good news of a creator God who made the world and everything in it. He speaks to their ignorance, to their worship of an unknown God. The God who made the world and everything in it, says Paul, is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. The fact that God created is the foundation of good news. There is hope, a hope based on the truth that the God who created will rescue his present beautiful creation. Maybe life looks bleak 
But your life, says Paul, isn't in the hands of these disposable, inconsequential, incompetent deities. No, the God who made the world is all around us. And Paul points to the beauty and the order of creation. These are evidence of a higher power, he says. God is here, but we may not have the eyes to see. There's a a Yiddish tale. The emperor of Rome once said to a rabbi, If you have a God, show him to me. Then I'll know that he's real. The rabbi said, Well, come with me. They went outside, and the rabbi told the emperor to look up at the sky. The emperor confessed that he couldn't. He said, "The, The sun is much too bright. The rabbi said, the son is only the servant of God and you're unable to look at it. How do you expect to see God himself? See, a life obsessed with dim realities cannot see and know the brightness of God. A heart divided will never see God. Life full of too much busyness will never see God. Perhaps we can't see God in the chemistry lab because we confine God to church buildings. Perhaps we can't see God in the political realm because we confine God to petty moralisms. Perhaps we can't see God in books and movies because we confine God to Bible verses. We live in the presence of God each day. The beauty and order of creation shows us God. But you can't warehouse God in a temple built with human hands. You can't capture God in some idol image. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. God is all around us. But God's not only all around us, God wants to be known. God wants to be sought. God wants to to reach out to him, even though, as Paul notes, God isn't far away. Paul quotes the philosopher Epimenides to drive his point home. For in him we live and move and have our being. God can not only be known, God wants to. To be known. Think about it. God cannot only be known. God wants you to know him. God wants to be connected to you. This is contra the Epicureans. Remember they believe that if there were gods. They were far away. They might agree with Paul's critique of pagan worship. But for opposite reasons. They figured that gods didn't need anything from humans. And Paul pointedly disagrees. God's not far from any one of us. God longs for a relationship of love with all of us. It's just enough to maybe startle or irritate the Epicureans. But it seems clear they wanted to hear more. And the Stoics? Well, they would love hearing that the divine life is in each human being. Paul quotes... The, the poet that Paul quotes is right up there at alley. We are his offspring. But Paul differs from the Stoics as well. The divine is in life and in breath, not just some cold principle of rationality. And God and the world are not the same thing. 
But your impulse to know should lead you to reach out for the real God. In fact, Paul's Jewish idea that humans are children of God, that were made in God's image, is a new idea. It carries some appeal to the Stoic mindset. They would want to hear more. So confronted with this cultural challenge of facing these Greek philosophies, Paul turns in faith to God's character as creator. He uses this foundation to appeal to the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. He appeals to their longing, a longing for a God who in their words is unknown. He doesn't dismiss. He tries to capture their attention. He tries to build a bridge. He teases them with just enough to keep them interested. And then Paul turns toward Jesus. He turns the conversation to Jesus and the resurrection and God's coming justice. Paul wants to point out that there's more than religion or spirituality at stake in the Christian faith. All of our efforts to capture God are futile. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance as Paul, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now right there, Paul violated every rule of the Areopagus when he mentions the resurrection. A well-known 5th century play by an Athenian playwright tells of the god Apollo who established the court of the Areopagus. And one of the things that Apollo says is that when a man dies and his blood is spilled on the ground, there is no resurrection. The ground rules of the Areopagus eliminate any talk at all of resurrection. You may have heard an audible gasp when Paul mentioned the resurrection. Some wanted to put an immediate end to such nonsense. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. They didn't mind Paul's talk about the order and beauty of creation. But resurrection? Talk of this Jesus, a Jew who was crucified, but God raised him from the dead? Many had nothing at all for Paul but mockery. But for others, this was a moment that intrigued them. We want to hear you again on this subject. Perhaps it caught a sense of the newness that Paul was aiming at. See, Paul wanted them all to know that they were living in a new moment in history. The time of ignorance is over. The times of not quite understanding who God was is ending. The resurrection speaks of something new. God is setting the world right. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. See, resurrection is the proof that Jesus is the coming judge. Resurrection is the proof that God's new world has started. Jesus being raised is the beginning. It's the first step in God setting right the whole world. What God did for Jesus in the resurrection, God will do for the whole cosmos at the end. And he Wright notes, the risen body of Jesus is the one bit of the physical universe that has already been set right. Jesus is therefore the one through whom 
Everything else will be set right. So God calls all people everywhere to repent. It means turn away. Turn away from your idols. For the Athenians, Paul addressed, it means turn away from these gods of gold and silver. For us, it means turn away from money, sex, power, the classic idols of our time. But remember, idolatry can show up in anything. John Calvin said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. We can make an idol of anything. Idolatry is serving ourselves, pursuing our work, focusing on our kids. Anything that's done in exclusion of our search for and relationship with God. Paul calls us to repent from idolatry because the root of sin is idolatry. It's not just one sin among many. Whenever we fail to trust God with our whole lives or fail to live rightly, we can be sure that we are pursuing idolatrous desires. They are competing for our affections. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Sin is primarily idolatry. Paul calls them to repent, to turn from idols. And then beyond repenting from idols, turn toward the living God. God made us so that we would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him. God has changed things up. God's timetable has moved up all the times and seasons to the day of Jesus' resurrection. Now, says Paul, now is a time when you can search for and find God. For God is a living God, not found in some religion or spirituality. God is a living God, more than some kind of political agenda or denomination tradition. God is a living, breathing God making Himself known in and through Jesus Christ. Jerry and Tracy lived across the street from some Christians, John and Yvonne. And they saw how John and Yvonne lived. They saw the impact John and Yvonne had on their neighbors, Andrew and Laura. And they sensed that there was something to this God thing. They weren't quite sure what it was. Then Jerry's dad had an accident, needed brain surgery. He was lying in the hospital and no one knew what would happen. And then Tracy got sick. She was put in another hospital. And they found out she had spinal meningitis. She could live or die. No one knew for sure. And so Jerry prayed. He did the best he could. He prayed. And amazingly, Tracy was healed. And so Jerry said, Tracy, I think we ought to go to church. And so first, Tracy got an invitation to coffee break from Yvonne. And then shortly after, Jerry and Tracy started attending worship. And they became a part of a small group. And then they were baptized. 
And on the day of their baptism, they told everybody, it's not about religion. They said, it's not about the church. In Tracy's words, anybody can have God. What matters is Jesus. God wants to be alive in your life. Repent. Yeah, turn away from the idols that hold your heart's affection. But then turn toward the living God. He's searching for you. Turn toward Jesus, the one who set all things right and will set all things right. That's the good news that Paul preached. Not some abstract and impersonal religion to be debated in the coffee shop. Paul preached Jesus, crucified for us, raised to life to begin God's new world. So what about you? I mean, we face challenges from culture all the time. Some think that God is a rational presence in us. Others see God, if there is a God, as an unconcerned deity sitting on some throne. Sometimes it seems there are as many gods as there are people to imagine them. All kinds of unknown gods. But there's one Lord of the ages, God before time. There is one Jesus, Redeemer, mighty to save. But you'll only find him if you turn from your ways, your idols, and turn toward God. God's not far from you. God longs to have you close. That's not enough to have religion. Lots of people have religion. God wants you to have life. Life in the name of the risen Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, what a gift that you not only are, but are close to us. What a gift that you are not only close to us, but that you reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ. And what a gift that you not only reveal yourself to us in Jesus Christ, but that in Him all things are new. Lord God, You are the one worthy of all worship and praise. So today, we disown any idol that tempts us to put our allegiance into things other than You. Help us not to turn anything into an ultimate thing, no matter how good it is. Help us not to do that. 
to worship and honor you. For you are the Lord of all ages. You are our God in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.